Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abysmo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vabysmo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-H-C-P.com. Welcome to the new Retina Radio Journal Club with BBS. My name is Sabin Dang, and I'm with the Retina Institute in St. Louis. Today, I'm joined by Preeti Rao from Retina and Vitreous of Texas and Houston. Hey, Sabin. How's it going? And Lidiana Godini from Retina Associates of Cleveland. Hi. Thank you for having me. Great to have you both. Today, we're going to be discussing impact of age-related macular degeneration and related visual disability on the risk of depression by Sunsun Huang. And this was published in Ophthalmology in January 2023. Preeti, would you mind summarizing the article for us? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a prospective study that evaluated the association of AMD and visual disability um, on the incidence of depression using a Korean National Health Insurance Service database. Um, so basically, this study population was um, based on this mandatory universal med- medical care system, um, which comprised of over 3 million patients. Um, and so they divided these patients into patients that had AMD at the time of uh, diagnosis or within one year of joining this database, um, and a control group of those that didn't have AMD. So they defined you know, the risk, uh, uh, depression risk as um, based on diagnostic codes um, on the Korean version of the ICD-10 codes. Um, and their de- definition of AMD was the presence of AMD within one year of being in this um, database, as mentioned. So the primary objective to, was to look at the incidence of depression um, over um, in, in this database. Um, and so they created this complex Cox proportional hazard model um, to kind of control for other risk factors. So their kind of main points is that overall, they found that the risk of depression in those that had AMD and the associated visual disability was higher in those that had AMD versus um, those that didn't have AMD. And AMD was defined as any AMD based on their diagnostic codes, regardless of um, wet or dry or exudative or non-exudative. And so when they had this um, kind of complex hazard model, when they adjusted for various behavioral factors and demographic factors, they found that uh, the risk of uh, depression was higher in those that had AMD versus not, so about a 15% increase. Um, And then when they divided it into those that had this associated visual disability, um, they found that it was almost a 23% increase or 1.23 odds ratio. And then they did further subset analysis um, by kind of stratifying based on age and sex and see if that influenced the association between AMD and um, depression. And they found that those that are in the younger age groups, so those that are less than um, age 65, and those that were men tend to have a higher risk of depression compared to their counterparts. Um, So their conclusion was overall that depression was, um, you know, over an eight-year, 8.52-year period um, was higher in those that had AMD and their associated visual disability. That's a great summary, Preeti. Thank you for that. Lediana, uh, I think we all can agree. We see these patients all the time in clinic. Um, We know that this population is prone to macular, I mean, excuse me, this population is prone to depression. Do you find that this large database study was the right way to really quantify this? Do you think there's any limitations with this kind of analysis? 
Um, I think it's a great way to look at it. I mean, they mentioned in the paper how previously they've been, um, you know, there've been smaller studies um, or more cross-sectional studies. This was more of a prospective longitudinal study. So they looked at the incidence of AMD. So I certainly think it's a great way to look at it. Um, certainly inherent limitations, you know, for all large, you know, epidemiologic, um, large data studies are there. For example, you know, all of the um, data was based on diagnosis codes. So with having this huge amount of patients, certainly, you know, they couldn't go back and, you know, check the scans or make sure that the surveys for the diagnosis of depression was correct, but that's kind of inherent in these large studies. Uh, but I think that the power of numbers is certainly there. And, um, you know, you it's in the association between the two, uh, the depression and the diagnosis of AMD as, is there. Um, and, you know, another limitation that could be in the paper is that this only included patients that were officially diagnosed with AMD. And certainly there might be patients um, out in the populations that are asymptomatic, you know, earlier stages that are undiagnosed. Um, and that could potentially influence some of the numbers here. But again, they had so many patients here that, um, you know, I do think that their findings are very valid. So it's Great. not surprising, I guess, to me. What they not found. surprising. Right. So one of the things I did see with, you know, you referenced that they are using diagnosis codes. And I was surprised to see that they didn't have the resolution in the diagnosis code to tell us exudative versus non-exudative, mild, intermediate, or severe, dry, AMD, preethy. I mean, do you think that's a limitation here? Does that really matter at the end of the day if we don't have that um, kind of resolution with the diagnosis codes? Yeah, great point, point Simon. Um, you know, I think the obviously as retina specialists, we want granularity when we're distinguishing between disease processes. Um, I think for what the paper accomplished, I, um, it's a first step to saying that to start talking about the relationship between AMD and depression, mental health issues. I would have liked to see better granularity for sure, because um, one of the discussion points in the paper is that they talked about maybe some reasons why people are depressed is that it's a lifelong condition with minimal available treatment, especially for dry. And that, as you got, as we all know, that paradigm is shifting. So it'd be have, interesting to see, you know, if those that had exudative AMD and they were being treated, whether that depression changed over time and with the advent of newer medications that are being introduced. So that's something that I would, I would like to see in the future. I think you're spot on. I mean, the landscape is completely changed with now us having a FDA approved dry AMD uh, treatment available. Um, it's efficacy we're still learning more about. But at the same time, our patients are in the door asking for it, right? I'm assuming that's both of you are experiencing that. And so we're taking these patients who had a hopeless condition and now saying, hey, there's potential opportunity. Um, so one of the questions I did look into or the, looking at the data was the visual disability aspect of things. Um, it said AMD with visual disability and AMD without visual disability. Preeti, I'm going to put it back to you again. How much do you think the AMD without visual disability was driven by the dry AMD folks without treatment? Do you think that's really what's what's driving that that number? Yeah, so that's an interesting question because they they define visual disability as um, based on their own. They have an own disability database, so they enter. This is a national database that they enter patients into so that they can get welfare benefits, um, and so it's pretty it's it's hard for us to know right like you know the the 
severe exudative AMD patients have, you know, large scars associated with their AMD. So I, I'm not sure actually. So um, I suspect that probably a lot of these patients are what you said, Sabin, is that the dry, severe AMD, mainly because there's not much treatment uh, at the time of their study. Or Great, thank you. And with that, we're going to take a brief break and we're going to come back with a more in-depth discussion on this important paper. Support for this program is brought to you by Genentech, the makers of Abysmo, Farisimab SVOA. There's more to explore. Discover all the data at vibismo-hcp.com. That's V-A-B-Y-S-M-O-H-C-P.com. Thank you for joining us back. We are discussing depression in macular degeneration patients. To pick back up, Lediana, this paper highlights just how prevalent depression is in this population. This is a population that the paper cites is already at risk for depression, and we're demonstrating that there's an increased risk with the diagnosis of macular degeneration with or without visual disability. Is this going to change anything that you do in clinic? Are you going to start screening patients for depression? Yeah, that's a very important point, obviously, that is brought up by the paper, because certainly they show this you know, correlation here. But then the real question is, what do we do about this um, huge problem? Um, I think it's really difficult as a physician to screen every single AMD patient. You know, as we know, the retina clinics are already very busy and very fast paced. And now, as uh, Preeti mentioned earlier, we might have um, newer influx or, or seeing our dry AMD patients more often now, especially the ones who want the injections for dry AMD. So the clinics will get busier. But I think a more reasonable way to screen is to have the patients maybe do a questionnaire when they check in or while they're waiting. And then anyone who screens positively on the uh, questionnaire that could be flagged as someone that you have to refer to either their primary care provider or a you know mental health provider and um, put them in touch that way. And certainly other specialties do that. I mean, um, recently, um, having had a baby myself, they do the postpartum depression screen when you go to your ob and to your pediatrician for all women who have children. So, um, and then anyone who scores, you know, a certain amount of points then gets referred to a provider. So I certainly think that's something that could be considered in our specialty as well. It's a great point. And you highlight that, hey, we are all busy and we're going to get busier as more treatments come down the pipeline. Um, but is it possible to do a screening and evaluate that, Preeti? How about you? Is that something you can see integrating in your clinic as well? Yeah, that's a great point, um, Sabin and Lidiana. Um, I, I think the easiest thing to do is have patients check off whether they are or not. Um, I think in a busy clinic, is it's hard. I think there's other indirect signs that we can kind of look for. You know, oftentimes, you know, in the best advice that was given to me is that patients and family will tell you their diagnosis if you listen long enough. So I think incorporating, you know, family members and things like that into the discussion, um, you know, really kind of clues into whether they have indirect signs of depression um, um, during your office visit, if we don't have time to do a questionnaire or anything like that. Um, and so that's maybe one way during the office visit. Um, and I think it, it, the idea behind why patients are de depressed are really important. Um, a lot of it we think is related to the treatment, either treatment burden or lack of treatment. Um, so I, at least when I talk with my patients, I try not to uh, have them lose all hope because the worst thing for a patient is that there's no hope. And so usually if there's not an imminent treatment, you may say, hey, we know there's not something now, but there might something be something in the future in the pipeline as as we all know. 
Preeti, you bringing up treatment burden is, is a great point. I mean, when we're talking about exudative AMD, it's actually a really exciting time for our field, right? We've got new agents that are recently on the market. Freesumab hit the market last year. Uh, high dose of Flibercept is completed its clinical trials. The data looks good, and it's going to be coming down the pipeline. Those two agents have the potential to reduce the treatment burden of neovascular uh, macular degeneration. Lediana, is that going to help some of this depression? Do you think that's going to be something that as Preeti said, give our patients hope? Yeah, I definitely think so. And I agree with what she said about trying not to give them this like doom and gloom picture. Anyone who's um, diagnosed with wet AMD, I try to tell them, you know what, this is good because we have a treatment for this. There's something to do about it. And patients like to hear that. I think the most devastating thing is when they have something that you tell them, unfortunately, we can't do anything about this. And thankfully, now we can do that for dry AMD too. offer them something. So I do think that giving them hope is good. And um, the treatment burden certainly is um, a big impact too, because patients often ask how, how many times do I have to come in for this or is this forever? So being able to tell them that, you know, maybe with these newer agents, you don't have to come in as much. I certainly think that will change their outlook and this won't be something that's so prevalent, something they have to come in, you know, so often for, and if it's more spread out, it's, you know, more in the back of their mind is, as opposed to being in the front forefront of their mind. So I, I do think that will help. Great. I'm going to pivot gears a little bit because I am really interested in these type of studies that use large data sets from either national or aggregated data sets. In the United States, we have the Academy's IRIS database. I mean, how do you see us using these data sets to answer interesting questions? I find this an amazing example. We're looking at depression in macular degeneration, two things that should be kind of difficult to tease out in a national database, but these investigators did a great job of coming up with parameters to answer that question. What else should we be looking at with these tools available to us? I'm going to go to you, Preeti, first. Okay. Yeah, no, I agree. I love these big data sets just because they can help tease out um, questions that are more nuanced, but kind of distill it down so that we could do further subset analysis. I think one thing that uh, these data sets can help us with is looking at the interactions of um, retinal disease, eye disease on the impact of, you know, our, our daily life. So this is a great example of, you know, uh, you know, retinal disease affecting, you know, our mental health. And so I think in the era of cost savings and cost efficiency, we need to take into fact about all these other socioeconomic issues and behavioral issue, you know, conditions that our eye diseases can affect. So we focus a lot about cost. And so maybe some of these longer agents, um, you know, they may reduce not only the treatment burden, but also our, you know, risk of depression, which has so many other implications on our, our health work situation. So I think using uh, this data to look at cost and um, nuanced um, disease burdens um, would be, you know, the, uh, the most beneficial. I think you're spot on. I, the economic impact of what we do is not insignificant, right? We talk about the impact, the financial impact of blindness on the GDP, for example, that can be huge. But when you try to model that out, unless you have these large data sets, we can't really answer that questions for legislators and policymakers to make informed decisions to try to help these patients. So uh, I think that's a really good one. Um, Lediana, any other thoughts on how we can use large data sets to help our patients? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I completely agree with what Beatrice said, looking at other health outcomes and the economic burden. And another thing is, um, you know, in light of us still being, you know, battling COVID-19, maybe, you know, other pandemics in the future, or other natural disasters, these kind of data sets can help us understand how these other external factors impact outcomes too, um, you know, in addition. So I think that's another interesting thing that it can help us with. Great. Well, I'd like to thank Preeti Rao and Lidiana Godini for joining us today on today's podcast. Uh, you're listening to New Retina Radio Journal Club with VBS and stay tuned for further episodes.